As I shared this morning, we hope to enter into the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we do that, we're going to read a few verses from the gospel according to John. John chapter 12, the verses 20 through 26. While I was at Mercy Church this spring, I, I preached a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And every time I found a supporting text from the gospel of John. I believe that, in fact, John, of all the gospels, through the words of Christ, answers some of the nine and difficult questions that are asked in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's so much hope and life in the gospel according to John. So let's read verses 20 through 26. There we read, Now there, was, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves life, his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And, in, and, anywhere, and where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. That's uh, the reading of John 12. But let's now turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, found near the middle of the Bible. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the end of the book, chapter 11. This afternoon I'll read and preach from the rest of 11 and beginning of verse, verses of 12. So, But we're going to start here at chapter 11, 1 through 6. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, there we find these words. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven, also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Loved ones in our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe the overarching question in the book of Ecclesiastes is this, why am I here? What are we doing here? And this is framed within a bigger reality that the, the, the author, the Koheleth, the teacher, which we believe is Solomon, is addressing in this book. You see, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's addressing the, this one word that keeps appearing 38 times in the book, and it's the word hevel. Maybe you've heard that word before. The word in, in the New King James Version, it's translated as vanity, 
vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The NIV translates it as meaningless, and everything is meaningless. The word directly from Hebrew, as some of you might know, means more like vapor. Like something that, like a breath that's gone in a moment. And in the context of this very, very short life, a life that is like Hevel, like a chasing after the wind, how ought you to live? Why are you here? It was instructive 3,000 years ago during the time of of Solomon and people of Israel. It's instructive in the 21st century all the same. The same question comes to you this morning. Your life is as short as it was, maybe a bit longer. Life expectancy maybe has grown a little bit, but on the scales of eternity, as short as the time of the people of Israel in Canaan. So why are you here? I have this plaque in my office. It sits right above my desk. Maybe I've told you this before. I don't know. It's a wooden plaque. It's called a storyboard. It's carved, a carved-in story, you could say, of, of life in Papua New Guinea. And in the center of this plaque, I asked the, 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 the artist to put a quote right in the center of it so that would remind me every day. I'll get to the quote shortly. But the quote was written by, or came to be by a, by a, a fellow missionary, you could say. His name was Charles Studd. He lived in the 1800s. But he wasn't always a missionary. In his late teens, he, he confessed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He professed his faith, which is what we're going to see this afternoon. I'm really excited about that. But then he said he just became this kind of unhappy backslider. That sometimes happens when people profess their faith. They profess their faith, but they don't actually live for Jesus. And that was him. But he was a famous cricketer. He was a famous cricket player, and he came from a very wealthy family. So he was kind of living both lives, the life of fame and the life of a Christian. Until an atheist friend came to him one day and challenged him. Maybe you've been challenged the same. And the atheist friend asks him, if Christ, or, and puts this question in front of him. He says, if Christians really kept eternity in mind, if you're really thinking that you have an eternal life that will last forever, would you not live radically different lives today? That was the question that was posed to Charles Studd. And he started to ponder that question. If we are living for eternal life, doesn't that shape our existence here in the present? And then he started to ask the difficult questions. What's all this flame, fame and flattery worth when, mom, when man sorry, comes to face eternity? I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last, but what was worthwhile was living for the world to come. He was 24 years old when he came to that conclusion. And by God's grace, he became a missionary in Southeast Asia. But during this time, he, he, he made this as kind of life quote you could say and it's now hanging above my desk it reminds me every day only one life to live it will soon be passed only what is done for Christ will last you see what is done for Christ in this short life that we live has immortal value may we never forget that now I get it Solomon 
I've said it before, Solomon is like a substitute teacher. He didn't have the full curriculum. He didn't know Christ as we know Christ. He didn't realize that there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. He didn't understand it completely. He saw it through a vein, through a, through a veil, you could say. But what was Solomon trying to do as he's speaking ultimately to the youth of his generation? He's trying to prepare them for this life, this short life, in order to prepare them for the next in some ways. He was trying to tell them right now, even in the present life, and we're going to get this to this afternoon as well, that we need to be fully engaged, fully invest, not in our own life, in our own kingdom, in our own selfish ends, but fully invest in God's kingdom. That's ultimately the purpose of this life. And so we're going to look at that theme this morning, fully invest in, in God's kingdom. And, and we're going to answer the question, how? From our text, how do we do that? And I think he provides us an answer to that question in three ways. One, we need to live generously. We need to live generously with the blessings God has given us. That's how we live fully engaged. Number two, we need to live confidently. We need to live confidently under the sovereignty of God. Not our own sovereignty, but God's sovereignty. He's in control. And we need to live expectantly. I think all three of those things come from our text this morning. Let's begin. Let's live generously. So he begins in, his, in verse chapter 11 verse, 11, verse 1. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Have you pondered that before, that one? That's a struggle. What's he saying? You know, there's this basic rule in biblical understanding and interpretation that you take a more difficult, you take a difficult text and you find a more, an easier text to help translate the difficult text. So you have Scripture, always interpreting Scripture. That's just a basic principle in Bible study. But what if you don't have any comparable passage in Scripture? What happens then is that translators take each word and try to frame it around an idea. And so the NIV has this translation. Chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Ship your grains across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. It's commerce that Solomon's talking about. But I want to propose to you this morning that's not commerce that he's talking about. I don't think the New King James Version moves in the, in the, in the, in the path of commerce. Not, not that commerce is intrinsically evil, not at all. But I don't think he's moving in the path of commerce. I want to actually go with the message this morning, which is a very dynamic translation by, brought by Eugene Peterson. He translates this text as this way. He says, be generous, invest in acts of charity, Charity yields high returns. Don't hoard your goods. Spread them around. Be a blessing to others. This could be your last night. That's very dynamic. I get that. But I still believe that that's what Solomon's trying to tell us. He's trying to lead, tell us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we, in, in this short life, need to think of the other. Invest and give to the other. Now, I get it. Solomon was investing overseas. He's one of the only kings. There's maybe one other king that really invested overseas. We read in 1 Kings 10, verse 22, the king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with a ship of Hiram. And once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. <laughs> they had quite the zoo in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. But is that where the teacher wants us to go? He's coming to the end of the book. He wants to encourage the reader to fear God, to remember the creator. 
He wants to address the question, what is good? What is the good we need to do in this short life that is like a chasing after the wind? What's that good? Because he says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice, that's us, and to do good in their lives. I'm going to ask you again, what is the good that the teacher wants you to do in your life? Is it risky business practices? Throwing your money at the TSC and hoping that it will come back in many days in a, in a great return? Doesn't that produce greed? Doesn't that kind of feed this idea that you're living for yourself and your own little kingdom? Your own little fiefdom? I don't think that's the good that he's trying to get us to think about. Because what's very interesting about the author, who is Solomon, he tried to get the most out of the investments he could from this life. He tried to milk every single investment, every single resource for his own pleasure. This is chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes. It begins this way. And indeed, all was... Sorry, verse 1. Come now, I will test you with mirth. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. That's that's the purpose of that. I'm going to test you. I'm going to test all my resources to find out what is good. And so what did he do? He milked every single pleasure that he could have access to. He milked the pleasure of wealth, extreme wealth. He milked the pleasure of sexual fantasies. He milked the pleasure of slaves and palaces and resorts and horses and carriages. He had way too much gold. He exhausted every single pleasure, more than anyone known in the history of this world almost. And what's his conclusion? His conclusion now is verse 11. And indeed, all was vanity and a grasping, a shepherding of the wind. There was no profit under the sun. It left me empty. He is a case study of someone who can just live it up and come at the end of it and say, it was just a waste. I threw my life away after pursuing all those pleasures. It was a failed experiment and will always be a failed experiment. You see, the exhausting of your own resources for your own personal end to milk the pleasures from everything you can is not the good life that the teacher wants you to think about. We call that hedonism. It doesn't end well. And I wonder this morning, how often do you test your money and your resources just to kind of find that better life? And then when you find it, you realize it's not any better, so you do it again. And then you realize it's still not better, so you do it again. It's an endless pursuit. You never have enough. The pursuit is like chasing the wind. No, the teacher now is challenging us by the power of the Holy Spirit to send our investments outward, ultimately heavenward, to secure them in the gates of the new Jerusalem, you could say. And this idea of generosity is not just found in verse 1. It's found in verse 2. It says, give uh, serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. There is a lot of evil on the earth. And in light of that evil, give away. Even to the seventh degree. That's like a complete honoring of others and the giving of others. That's the number of completion. And then even to the eighth degree. Give even when it hurts. Is Solomon saying something that's radically different than what we know in Scripture? 
I don't think he is. I think Jesus is very radical when it comes to giving. Very radical. To the point of not hating your life. That's how radical he gets. But Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in chapter 6, verse 20, 19, Matthew 6, 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Send your investment heavenward where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And why does Jesus tell you that? Because he's a lover of your soul. That's why. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart or there your soul will be also. Because he's a lover of your soul, he's challenging you in the 21st century in a very prosperous, affluent country to send your investment heavenward before it's too late. Take the best of what you have and who you are and give it away. That's casting your bread upon the waters. Because what happens when you hoard? What happens when you become focused on self? When you just kind of keep building that kingdom for your own end? Jesus has a parable for you as well and me. This is Luke 12, verse 20. There's a parable of a rich farmer. He had a bountiful crop. It's fitting right now. As I drove here with my family from Hamilton, I saw so many crops being gathered, already gathered, corn as high as an elephant's eye. My dad used to sing that song. It's a song about corn in the elephant's eye. You'll get it later. He had a bumper crop. He had no room for his crop. So what do you think? He said, you know, rather than thinking, you know, I have been blessed so much. How do I share my blessings with others? No, his first thought was, how do I build a bigger barn to store more of my treasures? I wanted them to go as high as the heavens. I like that new car. I like that new house. Who cares about the poor and the broken and the church under the cross in Nigeria and Afghanistan? It's all about me. So what did he do? He built a bigger barn. And then he says to his soul, because this is what happens when you have a lot of things. Soul, he says. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't worry about your neighbor, soul. That's so easy. This is what God says to children that his children who do that. Probably one of the worst words in scripture, actually. God says to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all these things be which you have provided? I was just talking, I preached a sermon at Blessings the other Sunday and a gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, I knew a neighbor, he, worked, he was a pastor out east actually, he said, I knew a neighbor for 45 years, he worked every single day of those years to build up his inheritance. He worked so hard every day at the cost of his family, at the cost of a whole pile of things, he was just like, I'm going to work and I'm going to make money. He retired the very next day he died. There are so many stories like that. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So my question to you, because I'm going to ask this according to Scripture, are you rich towards God? And if you're rich towards God, you're rich towards other people as well. You're rich to the other. Is your heart beating with God's heart, you could say? See, this is God's heart. I read this text, but this is God's heart. 
We serve an absolutely generous God. I, I hope you know that. He is so generous. And it's captured, Paul captures it so beautifully. One of my favorite texts is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yeah, he was very rich. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns every single mineral in the ocean and on, on dry land. He owns the universe. He was very rich. Yet for your sakes, ours, he became poor. That listen, that through his poverty, you might become rich. Also in generosity. Because if life is certain, and it is, if life is short, and it is, if disaster could strike any time, and it can, if all that you have belongs to God anyway, if Christ has given you his life, what should this produce in your heart? It should produce generosity. That's the outflow of all those gifts that you've been given in this short life. It's a prying your finger off the things of this world so that you can be rich towards God. It's giving liberally to the church and to the advancement of his kingdom so that his kingdom can grow. It's giving for the sake of the poor, the traffic, those who are struggling with abortion, overseas missions, the Christians in Afghanistan and Nigeria. It's giving for the sake of Christ's kingdom and the love of others. even when you're young. I want to ask the youth amongst us, even those who are professing your faith, are you generous towards God and his kingdom? If nothing clogs your spiritual arteries more than money and things, it's been said, and that can start very early on, even as a youth. Do you know why people don't give generously for the work of the Lord? Two reasons, I'm going to focus on one of them. The first reason is simply greed. We overspend, we create unbelievable debt, and we have nothing left to give to the Lord because we're always paying off the next debt. That's a first world problem, but it's a serious one. That's another sermon. You're like, thank you, because this is going to take a long time to get through the next one. Yes, not that long. But here's the other reason. The other reason we don't give generously for the work of the Lord and for the advancement of his kingdom, because we are reticent to give we fear an uncertain tomorrow there's a lot of things to fear about the market the housing market insurances investments the price of goods and services because of this global supply chain issue there's a lot of fear about tomorrow so we begin to hold back we can't give we need to save 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 saving is intrinsically not evil until you save to a point where you can't see god in the midst of all your savings because the question is a deep one. Is your lack of giving more connected to a lack of trust in God's sovereignty than in the resources he's provided? Is your lack of not giving, a, a lack of trust? We all, even the children amongst us, have something to give. Do we look at tomorrow and we analyze tomorrow and we become paralyzed? This is what we call paralysis by analysis. And this is what happens. I, I need to get to this in, in the next verses. Here we go. This is the living under God's sovereignty now. First, the wind keeps blowing my pages here. Can't find myself here. Okay, here we go. Give a serving to seven. We read that. 
verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He said, what does that have to do with giving? This. The teacher is helping us to understand the foundation of our confidence. Part of our confidence in giving is confidence in God who has ordered a predictable world for us to live in. So predictable that we said it's okay if we have worship service outside today. Because we predicted through the clouds coverage that it's going to be okay. It hasn't rained yet. And if a tree falls in the, in the, in the, in the bush, there it lies. What's the point? God knows. Because he's in control of all these beautiful trees and all this beautiful landscape that we see. As he is in control of the clouds. And there are things that we can predict about them. But the predictability of the elements and nature should help ground us in the knowledge that we live in an ordered planet. But that's true, and two things flow from that. If this thing is an ordered planet, we can trust in a God who is in control of it. He's made a covenant with the sun. The sun will shine until Jesus returns. Believe you me. And because he has ordered this planet, you can live in faith knowing that he will care for you as you give generously for his kingdom. Or you become risk-averse, like the financial planner who studies the markets and say, today is not a good day to, to invest. No, not, not, neither is tomorrow. Uh, neither is the next day. And all you every day is say, well, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't give because it's just not a good day. I need that. This, this is where we go. he goes in verse 4. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. See what he's saying? Yeah, I get it. In Israel, during the time of Solomon, the clouds that came from the, from the east, sorry, the winds that came from the east were very, very dry because they came over a desert. So it wasn't a good time to plant. I get that. And sometimes the clouds that come from the west, the, the winds that would come from the west were big, burly rain clouds that would come with them because it was coming off the Mediterranean Sea. And then they would say, it's not a good time to harvest. And so what happens? You have no crops. It's never a good time to invest in God's kingdom, either with your resources or your time. That's what he's saying. See, the knowledge of a predictable universe allows us to plan, but planning can become an idol. When we don't lift our eyes off the things of this world into a heavenly reality that we're made for eternity, so give generously today. You know, speaking about giving of your time and resources, Many 500 years ago or 700 years ago during the bubonic plague, the, the, a lot of people moved out of the cities because it was unsafe to live in the cities. The virus was, was spreading. The parasite, whatever it was, was spreading quickly in the cities through rats and other rodents. So they moved out of the cities. But who stayed? The Christians stayed. They cast their bread upon the waters. They knew that it could come at the cost of their life. They used their resources for the sake of the other. And God blessed them. And he blessed the world through such followers of Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, are you trusting the sovereignty of God who is in control of your time and of your resources? This is where he reminds us that he is sovereignly in control of our time and our resources. Verse 5, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. He, he wants you to understand that we, we have a really big God who is in control. 
But not only is he in control, he's intimately in control, even, of course, of the wind, but even more particularly of the conception that happens in the womb, of the spirit that lives in that child. I, I love this. I don't know if you really understand how babies are born. I'm not going to get into a whole, the whole topic. I just want to tell you that there's 23 chromosomes from the woman and 23 chromosomes from the, from the man, and they come together and they, they form this beautiful cell called the zygote, and the zygote cell has life in it. Well, from whence does that happen? And not only that, as followers of Jesus and, and believers in God, we, we believe that God is now in covenant with that child. His hand of love and mercy is upon that child already at conception. He is there, forming those bones, quickening that heart, giving that child life and a soul. I say that because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The God who is in control of this universe is in control of us from the, from the womb to the tomb. He is sovereignly controlling your life. But he then he goes from the particular, from the small, into the big picture. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Yeah. We admit our ignorance when it comes to the works of God who makes everything. Do you understand how this universe functions? Do you understand how this universe was formed? You know, even scientists agree that this no universe, this habitable universe that we're in on earth right now is, is a mystery, is a miracle beyond compare. The very fact that you're listening to me right now, looking at me, breathing in air, is such a miracle. Scientists try to compute the, the odds of this ever happening, and they have. They've computed, they made some calculations. The probability of you sitting in front of me right now, listening to the sermon, and me challenging you by the grace of God to give generously, this is the odds. They say that there are so many constants that have to be perfectly aligned for us to live here right now. I'll just give a few for the scientists among us. The strong and weak nuclear forces in the universe, the ratio of electrons to protons, the velocity of light, the decay rate of protons, the ratio of neutron mass to proton mass, the density of galaxy clusters, the average distance between stars, the gravitational force constants, and hundreds more perfectly aligned so you could sit in front of me this morning. Isn't that a miracle? They say the odds is 1 over 10 to the power of 1,240. That's a lot of zeros. For the children amongst us, I'll put that into a, a picture. It would be like me having a shotgun right now in my hands, shooting a bullet into space. This bullet would have to travel 20 billion light years. That's a long time and a long space. And hit a quarter. And I'd have to do that twice. That, they say, is the probability of all the constants lining up in this universe so that you can sit here in front of me this morning and breathe. And God beats all those odds, every single one of them, because he's sovereign. He has created you and fashioned you in his image. He has given you this place to live and to move and have your being. And he's calling out to you to cast your bread upon the waters. Don't you worry. I'm in control. I have your tomorrow even if it's uncertain from your perspective. He's calling us to be generous. Let me close with this. 
We tend to live generously with the blessings God has given us. We're called to live confidently in the sovereignty of God who is fully in control. And finally, we're called to live expectantly. Verse, verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or, or both alike will be good. What's he saying? Well, God's sovereignty of this vast universe and of your life who is in covenant with you, this knowledge of God's sovereignty does not make you or should not make you lazy or indifferent. No, this sovereignty of God who is in control of your life is really a call to action. Sow your seed. And in the evening, do not let your hands be idle. Be fully engaged. And it seems that verse 6 and verse 1 and 2 are like bookends. Cast your bread upon the waters, give servings to seven, even to eight, and now sow your seed. Everything about giving, everything about being generous. This is the heart of God, and this is what he desires of his children. But we have to understand this morning, again, that God is not calling us to do something that he knows nothing about. There's risks in giving. I get that. I know friends and people who have made vows of poverty and others who haven't. But there's risks in all that. There's risk in going overseas missions. There's risk in moving to a certain part of the city. There's risks in, in serving the Lord fully engaged. There's risks. I'll tell you this morning that Jesus knows all those risks. Jesus says in, in, in John uh, 12 verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Loved ones, he is that grain of wheat. And he did fall to the ground. He was buried in it. You can say our Lord Jesus cast his life, the bread of life, upon the waters of God's judgment to find us in many days. And he will, and he has. So that we could become the fruit of his investment. He's so blessed by knowing that his work was not in vain, but because of his work, because of his dying and coming back to life, he found us after many days, after three days really, his church began to build and one day he will meet his bride. He risked everything for you. But I tell you this morning that it was a calculated risk. Because his love for you and me was greater than the cost of the risk to his life. That's, what, that's a calculated risk. His love just pulsated right through the cross. That he died for you so that you would have eternal life. He is such a generous God. Now Jesus says to you this morning. Cast your bread upon the waters. For my sake. How are you going to serve me today? Jesus is asking you, in the short few days that you have on this life, how are you going to serve me? He gives us a clue in how that's going to look. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. And the sacrifices that you make, 
it says in Hebrews 13, verse 6, the sacrifices that you make for his kingdom go up as a pleasing sacrifice to God. God is honored. God knows every pulse, every movement of your heart, and every thought of generosity and giving that you give for his kingdom. And he blesses it. So you see, a, rich, a Christian grows rich by his losses. A Christian lives by dying and becomes full by being emptied. That's the radical life of a Christian. And loved ones, you may never know what your heart of generosity will produce, what your kind acts, your resources, your time, your energy for the sake of the other, for God's glory. You, you may not find it after many days on this side of eternity. You don't know how your love and your service of the Lord will, will produce dividends in the lives of other people. And maybe you don't need to know. But you will find it after many days. I believe that's a picture of what we will get to experience in eternity. When we meet with Christ and all the people who have been saved by his grace. And the people we have served through our giving. Our time, our energy, our love. Because, loved ones, you only do have one life to live. I think you realize that. And, loved ones, it will soon be passed. I think you realize that too. But what you send on ahead, what you do for Christ, is immortal. I hope you remember that. Amen.